You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. So a few months ago, maybe, Adrian and I got really into this show, Kitchen Nightmares, with Gordon Ramsay. Now, has anyone watched Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay? Okay, I'm going to, now I want Joe to edit in cricket sound effects when I ask questions, so I'm going to listen and see if he does it. Uh, if you never watched Gordon Ramsay Kitchen Nightmares, uh, if you have, I should say, this will probably be a very meaningful sermon. If not, you might not get as much from it, but I hope to explain the concept. So here's the idea behind Gordon, uh, Gordon Ramsay Kitchen Nightmares is you have a famous chef, Gordon Ramsay, who goes into these restaurants that aren't doing very well. They're, uh, they're dirty, their food is gross, they're losing customers, they're losing money, and they bring in Gordon Ramsay to kind of come in and fix them up. And every episode kind of goes the same way. He goes to a restaurant, and he takes a look around the lobby, and he does like his little dirt test, and, and you know, sees all the dirt. It's filthy. When's the last time you cleaned? Because he's British. And that's my best British impression. And he sees how gross it is. Then he goes and sits down at the restaurant and he sees how terrible the service is. And then he gets some of their food and he's, it's blonde. Where's the salt? Where are your standards? And he gets uh, really mad at them. And they always get into a fight with the restaurant owners because he sees how gross the restaurant is. And he tells them why they're losing money and why no one is coming. And generally it's always the same problem. They come at it from different angles, but the the problem is usually that at some point, the restaurant owners uh, fell into their sort of routine of restaurant owning. They got into being restaurateurs probably because they really believed in it. They had ideas for a restaurant, how they wanted to serve people. But as life went on and they got into their ruts, they started to see their restaurant as restaurant owners. And when they did that, they would start to take shortcuts. And you know, instead of taking the time to prepare the food, they would start to microwave the food because to save time. As a restaurant owner, you want to save time. And instead of taking the time to clean the restaurant, they would just skip the parts that most people didn't look at, like underneath the cushions, because restaurant owners want to save time. Instead of buying fresh food, they'd buy frozen food because restaurant owners want to save money. And usually they see their restaurant through the eyes of restaurant owners. And Gordon Ramsay comes in there to try to sort of switch their thinking to see the restaurant not as restaurant owners but as customers because customers have different priorities for the restaurant because you almost always ask them this where are your standards like at some point they just lowered their standards to get the job done as restaurant owners but as customers it wasn't up to par and he's trying to get them he tries to get them to think in a new way to see their restaurant how a customer would see it and that's pretty challenging for them usually. That's why they made a whole show out of it. And now, as bad of an illustration as this is, it makes sense to me, so I'm going with it, that I think this is somewhat Peter's purpose in the letter of First and Second Peter, 
where he's trying to get them to change their thinking instead of thinking just in this lifetime, but to think eternally. Because it's the same kind of problems. If, if you think about just your life as now, the you know, 70, 80, however many years you have to live, if that many, if you see your life just as that and get focused on right now, you're going to have priorities of right now. And you're going to start taking shortcuts because it's more convenient right now, not thinking eternally. You're going to start lowering your standards because it's easier right now instead of in eternity. And you're going to start sinning because it's more pleasurable right now rather than thinking for eternity. And Peter is kind of Gordon Ramseying them to, to instead of thinking of your life as a temporary or a temporal finite being who lives about 70 years, 80 years, then you're gone. He's trying to get them to see themselves as eternal beings and to re-examine their lives from the perspective of they are eternal beings and should be thinking about their lives with eternity in mind. And he's trying to help the people think that way, think forward to eternity and to make some big changes in their lives to do that. Like Jesus says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And you can't just try to cram God into your already existing life and hope that works out, where he has to be the center of it and then cram everything else around that. And he's trying to get them to see that way. And that's been a theme throughout the whole letter, like just in the first chapter alone. In 1 Peter 1.4, he talks about their inheritance that's incorruptible, thinking for eternity. In 1 Peter 1.9, he talks about the end of your salvation, or the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, rest your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And that's just in the first chapter. Throughout it, he's saying, think about eternity. Don't prioritize your life around these However many years God gives you on this planet, prioritize your life around eternity. And it deals with this problem, and we'll be in chapter 4 tonight, of living without an eternal perspective. Getting wrapped up in this life and making all of our decisions based on what's best for us now. And just like it's bad for the restaurant owners to see their restaurant as restaurant owners because they'll take shortcuts and lower their standards, so too for us, it's bad to look at our lives as this is the focus. Because we'll take shortcuts, we'll lower our standards, and we'll sin. And if we're going to change this, it's like Gordon Ramsay. I'm going to come back to that a lot. That's going to be the, the controlling image for this sermon. It is this Gordon Ramsay idea where he goes in and tries to change their thinking. And looking at our lives like there's more to it than just these years on this earth. Remembering our true purpose to serve God and obey His commandments. So part of the understanding of this is that we are all eternal. Every single person on this planet is eternal in some sense. Not in the same sense God is eternal because he's without beginning or end. He is, eternity is outside of time. But we're eternal in the sense that we will continue to exist eternally in one place or another. If that's true for everybody. We're either going to exist eternally in heaven or in hell. In God's kingdom or in hell. Is payment for our sins. And it's very hard to follow Jesus if we forget this, if we get wrapped up in this life. Because this is what it's all about, is the next one. That's where Peter's trying to get us to think. Think eternally and reorganize your life around that. And who he's talking to 
is people that are suffering some terrible persecution. They're starting to really worry. That's why they're awaiting a letter from Peter, the disciple Peter, a follower of Jesus himself, giving them a letter of encouragement as they're being persecuted and they're suffering for the name of Jesus. And this is what he tells them is to just rethink your life. It's not about right now. It's about eternity. And what he'll tell us here in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11, is that because we're eternal people, we need to live with an eternal perspective. So the first thing he points out, well, let's read the verses, then we'll go back and jump into it. So it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he, should, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the first part of this, the first six verses in this chunk of the Bible is, has to do with the old behaviors. Changing the old behaviors, because that's what change is all about. And where I'm coming from in this, just, just to get the, the mindset on this, is like I want us to do these things. Like I want us to seriously consider about, because we all need to make some changes in these areas and to practice it. And it's not about, like, I don't just want to say a message and be like, okay, nice. But like, really think about changing some of our old, earthly, temporal, finite behaviors and replacing those with eternal behaviors. Because that's what Peter is trying to get these people to do. And the first six verses have to do with changing their old behaviors. So it says in verse 1, here's our starting point. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. If Peter starts with Jesus, which is obviously very important, he starts with Jesus and Jesus suffering for us in the flesh. And before we even get to anything about behaviors or anything about changing anything, we need to start on that foundation. Because if you're going to change behavior, you need a foundation that you can change it upon. And just wanting to change is not a strong enough foundation to make real change and thinking for eternity. You need Jesus. You need the starting point since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. And not just an acknowledgement of that. Now like, yeah, I believe Jesus suffered in the flesh, but it's a full trust in that. That's what I'm going to base my life around and follow him because that's what it means. I'm going to follow Jesus since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Peter starts there. That's our starting point. Before I even think about changing any behavior, we've got to start there and embrace that. And if you're going to embrace that again, that means you're going to follow him. Which brings us to our mindset. 
arm yourselves also with the same mind. Again, before we get to any behaviors, it starts with Jesus, then the mind. Arm yourselves with that same mind. If Jesus suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself. Prepare yourself for battle with that same way of thinking. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to follow him in that same way. And you need to arm yourself with that way of thinking. So there's our starting point, Jesus, fully embracing the fact that he suffered for us in the flesh. And that means you're following him. In your mind, being preparing yourself that I'm going to have that mind too. And then he gets to the behaviors. So here's some of the, the temporary, the earthly behaviors, and then we need to replace those with eternal behaviors. The first thing he says is we got to make a decision to suffer. So if you look at verse 1, the last part of that, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Peter, God is telling us, let's make a decision to suffer. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, he suffered for us. We're going to have that same way of thinking. If we're going to follow him, we have to make a decision that we're going to suffer too. Because the earthly us, when we think of our lives as right now, we're not going to want to suffer. We're going to avoid that at all cost. Whether it's by, by sin, by neglect, by whatever. We're going to avoid suffering at all costs if we've not armed ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had because he suffered for us in the flesh. So he's saying, you... With the same mind, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But I want to start, let's get even more practical than that. I don't even want to talk about suffering so much right now and having that same mind as Jesus because I need to step back even farther. I'm going to go even like to minor inconvenience. Right? There, I won't even take minor inconveniences very well. So I don't even know if I can begin to talk about suffering in the same way that Jesus has suffered and being okay with that. So an earthly behavior we can start to change is to stop being weighed down with minor inconveniences. Because what the Bible says to us is, if we're not going to be faithful in a little, we're not going to be faithful in much. And I can think, well, I'm going to whine about some minor inconvenience, but when it comes to the big stuff, I'll be okay and I'll, I'll suffer like a champion. But according to the Bible, that's not how it works. If you can't take the little things... Well, you're not going to take the big things well. You see, if I whine because I don't have enough free time, see, that's not even suffering. That's a minor inconvenience. Or if I obsess because money is tight. Or if I badmouth someone because they said one little thing about me, so I'm going to talk behind their back. How can I say I'm going to suffer in the same way that Jesus did? And so I want to, I'm going to just start there because consider the original context of this. He's writing to people who were being arrested for their faith, who were being mocked and reviled and losing all their social standing. And he's telling them, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, let's do the same thing. Have that same mindset. Because if you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. So let's start here, just as a starting point. I'm not trying to, to what's that, like backtrack on like what it actually says. But starting point. We've got to take some baby steps sometimes. Let's start being, with being okay when things aren't going that well for us. Because the reason why those things bother us is here's where we've got to change our thinking. It's because we're thinking too much of this life and not thinking eternally. Because if I'm worried about time, so I'm going to whine about it and be, be upset that I don't have enough time. See, what that means is I'm forgetting that I have eternity. 
I literally have eternity to have all the time I want. If I'm worried about money, I'm forgetting that I'm a co-heir with Christ in God's kingdom. If I'm worried about what people think of me, I'm forgetting that God Almighty loves me and suffered for me in the flesh. And when we can redirect our thinking to eternity, then these minor inconveniences aren't really so bad. And that's what Peter's trying to get them to, to think about. And they're not having minor inconveniences by any means. But I'm saying if I can't take those little things well, the big things I, I'm going to have a lot of problems with. Here's why this is very important. Look at this part when it says, He who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that doesn't mean you're done sinning. And what it means is like saying, I'm done with sin. And that's very powerful. If you're willing to suffer in the flesh, if you're willing to know that Jesus suffered for you and you're going to arm yourself with the same mind, so I'm going to suffer okay, that's you saying, I'm done with sin. I'm done with it. Not that you don't stumble, not that you don't fall, not that you don't trip up, but you're saying you're making a declaration to yourself and to Satan to say, I'm done with sin because there's no way you can suffer for God's kingdom if you're thinking about only this life. If you're thinking about eternity and you're going to suffer because you have an eternity where there's no weeping and where there's rejoicing forevermore and pleasures at God's right hand, you're saying, I'm done with sin. It has no dominion over me. Yes, I stumble. Yes, I fall. But I'm done with it. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's making that bold declaration that you've had enough. And the only way you're going to do that and begin to do that it's to change your thinking from earthly to eternal. It's that starting point. Jesus suffered in the flesh. I'm going to have that same way of thinking. If I'm following Jesus, I'm going where Jesus goes. Jesus goes into suffering. If you're not going to think eternally about it, there's no way you're going to. There's no way. Not even minor inconvenience. And I know that. That's why I'm, that's why I'm starting with minor inconvenience because that even trips me up. If I'm not willing to follow Jesus in those areas and just say, it's all right because eternity... Then when that big stuff comes, I don't know, I don't know how that's going to go. Right, so we can make that, change that behavior. He says next, verse 2, the second, second behavior, earthly to eternal behavior. So the earthly behavior is living for the lusts of men. Let's change that behavior into the eternal behavior of living for the will of God. So verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God. Because once you've made this decision that we talked about in verse 1, and the decision to suffer and be eternally minded, what that does, is that's freedom. It makes you free to live for the will of God. Rather than just chasing after your own lusts and being a slave to your own lusts and living for that, there's freedom there. As it says that when you've made that decision to suffer, to follow Jesus in that way, then you're not living the rest of your time. See, that's the temporary, the earthly time. You're not living that time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but you're living that time for the will of God. And living for the lusts of men, let's talk about that. I mean, that's what we're going to want to do when we're stuck in the mindset of this world, when we're stuck in this is all that there is, is these, and in, 
It's just like those restaurant owners. I mean, Christians, we, I don't, we don't go into this with, with bad intentions, thinking like, I'm just going to get stuck in a rut and I'm going to you know, fall back into old habits. We don't have those intentions. But with all the struggles of life, with all the stuff we experience, we'll fall back into those old, old habits. So when we're living for the lusts of men, that's what we're going to want to do when we're stuck there. Because sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't want to do it. And we wouldn't fall. And it's pleasurable for a time even, maybe even a long time. But even the world, even the most godless, irreligious person out there knows that it just chasing, pursuing, living his time in the flesh for the lust of men, everyone knows that's not fulfilling. But that's what we do when we're stuck like this is all there is, this lifetime. Even the most hedonistic philosophies and self-centered humanism is going to tell people, you need to find a purpose in your life. Because even they know, eat, drink, and be merry is not a fulfilling life. Chasing after the lusts of men does not satisfy us, does not fulfill us. It's not enough. But we become slaves to that. That's what the Bible says. We become slaves to the lusts of men, to our sin. Because we might think we're free, but, but we're not. You know, I talk about this sometime with with my students in school about, you know, what is freedom? And they'll say something like, being able to do whatever you want. They say, okay, uh, if that's freedom, that's, that's not freedom. You're not going to leave your house if, you can, if freedom means you can do anything you want because you'll probably get killed. You'll probably get robbed, right? For doing anything you want to do is not freedom. It's fear and slavery and bondage. And thinking... I can sin, I can do whatever I want, I can live for the lust of men. That's not freedom, that's slavery. Because you can't quit. It's not fulfilling. We become slaves. So we, now, that's the earthly mindset. We've got to change that to eternal. We make a decision to suffer because Jesus did. So that we're declaring, we're done with sin. I've ceased from sin. Now I'm not going to live for my lust anymore. And the reason is in verse 3. Peter's very real about this. For we know, or we have, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Look, we've, we've wasted enough of our lives doing that, living for the lusts of men. We know there's nothing there. We don't need to go back there. We don't need to be thinking that's the easy way out. Look, I've spent enough of my lifetime being high. I've spent a lo- enough of my lifetime being drunk. I've spent enough of my lifetime lusting. I've spent enough of my lifetime stealing, telling lies, all that stuff. I've wasted enough time doing that. I don't need to anymore. And Peter's telling him that. Don't, that's when we're not willing to suffer for Jesus and think eternally we're going to slide back into the habit of the lust of men because that's the short term, maybe the most pleasurable. But thinking eternally is not. And he gives us examples of these things, just in case you're not sure, but I'm sure you know. We spend enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness. I looked into lewdness just to be clear on what that means. The definition of the word in Greek that's used is someone who wastes something like money, but especially himself. So lewdness is wasting yourself. We spend enough time wasting ourselves. When we walked in lust, we know what that means when we walked in drunkenness, when we walked in revelries. I love the way revelries is defined on Blue Letter Bible, the, the Greek term. 
It says, a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before houses of male and female friends, hence use generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. I just like that because it's the nerdiest way I've heard to describe a party, but that's, that's what it means. And we spend enough of the time wasted in revelries drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Living for yourself, having someone else at the center of your life or something else besides God. That's idolatry. We've spent enough time doing that. And so we're going to think not short-term, not what's most pleasurable short-term in this 70 years, whatever it is, thinking eternally. Because we've made a decision to follow Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, that's where we're going to go. If Jesus went to suffer, we're going to go to suffer. We've armed ourselves with that mind to say we've ceased from sin, so we live not for the lust of the flesh, but here's the eternal part now. Instead of living for the lust of the flesh, we're living for the, the will of God, it says. That's the eternal part, and that is the freedom. Because here's how that's freedom, to live for the will of God. I've already said, hey, sin is not freedom. Sin is slavery. Well, here's the will of God. I, I've heard it explained like this, that it's not a parking space, it's a parking lot. The will of God is not one tiny little path for you, it's, it's boundaries for your life, for your good. And I think about at our house, we have a really nice backyard, and there's a fence around it on three sides. Well, there's fence, fence, and then the house, and they can't get around that. But on one side, there's, there's a rickety kind of fence made out of wire and stuff. But there's, there's a play set in there, there's toys back there, and... We love when the kids go play in the backyard because they can do whatever they want. We don't even have to watch them hardly. We just look out the window once in a while and, and they're fine. Just do whatever you want to do in the backyard. It's, you're free to do whatever you want. But there is that rickety fence. And they can go outside of it. They figured out how to open it and go outside that fence. And they have once in a while. But we don't let them. We don't let them go out there. We try to, to keep an eye on it so at least they don't go out that fence. The reason why... It's two things. Number one, there's nothing out there. Like their toys are in the fence. Their, their swing set is in the fence. Outside the fence is just like a tree and some grass. And so there's nothing out there. They don't need to go out there. What are they going to do out there? The other reason we don't let them out there is because the street is out there. And it's kind of a busy street. And there's cars and there's people walking by and, and weirdos and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's dangerous for them out there. But that's the will of God. They have freedom to do pretty much whatever they want in that backyard. Outside of it, it's not that we're, we're restricting their freedom. It's that we know there's nothing good out there and it's going to hurt them potentially. So we don't want them to go out there. But now sometimes we think the will of God is like saying, hey, we have this whole backyard, but you have to play on the swings. That's all you can do because that's God's will for your life. No, God's will is freedom in the backyard. Outside the fence is going to hurt you and there's nothing out there in the backyard, do whatever you want. As long as it's godly, do it. But that's, that's the will of God, and that's freedom, because that's not going to hurt us. If it's going to hurt you, it's not freedom. So he tells us, again, the, the earthly thing, living for the lust of flesh, let's change that to living for the will of God. The third one, verse 4, is to be different. Yeah, that's a behavior we can change. We're not going to blend in. We're going to be different. He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And this is a theme through the letter is about being different. Peter calls us pilgrims, or strangers, exiles, wanderers, sojourners. 
however you want to translate it, that we're strangers alongside. We're just passing through this world. This world is not our home. We're just going through it. So that means we need to be different. And he's telling them, they're going to speak evil of you. You're not going to live for the lust of men. That's weird. You know, what's wrong with you? They're going to speak evil. And if you're earthly minded, you're going to want to avoid that. I do all the time. I avoid, it's a failing of mine. I I like saying it a lot, so then it holds me accountable. I avoid talking about Jesus unless I like have to, because I think too earthly minded at times. And this is, but it's our difference is what makes Jesus appealing. And it always has been. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was on the earth, he was different. He was upsetting the entire society and religious system they had going on. He was cleansing the temple, overthrowing their tables, telling people you don't get right with God by following these tiny little rules and giving money to the priests. You get right with God by repenting and putting your faith in him. Right? And he was different. That was a message of, of difference that appealed to people. It was against the culture. Today, he's different now. And so we, as followers of Jesus, armed with the same way of thinking he has, we should want to be different. That's our appeal. That's what draws people to us. You know, I was reading an article, and I didn't write down the title or anything. I don't even remember where I read it, so I can't give credit. But it, it, was, it was about th- this idea about being different. And it talked about in the early 1900s in the church, there was this push to de-emphasize miracles in the early 1900s because scientific thinking and rational thought was in modernism was becoming, starting to become pretty popular in the early 1900s. And they thought with people and all the new scientific advancements, there's no way they're going to believe in miracles. We can't talk about miracles anymore. People are too rational now. People are too scientific. So let's put miracles to the side and we'll focus on morality because everyone wants to be a good person. And in one sense, it was successful. I would say in general, the culture was more moral back then. But on the other hand, when you look at the history of the church in the early 1900s, the biggest movement at that time was charismatic and Pentecostal, and that was just getting started back then. So the biggest movement was the one that embraced miracles. It says, no, I don't care that the culture says miracles can't happen. We're going to embrace miracles and be all about that. And that was the biggest movement back then because it was different. They didn't try to appease the culture. They went against it. And even today, same idea. So now... People say, well, the culture's morality is too different than the Bible's. So let's kind of ignore morality and just kind of talk about loving people and helping each other, which is good. But what are the, what's the biggest movement in the church today is fundamental, biblical, Bible-believing morality and Christianity. That's the biggest movement. The churches that are all about just like love and help people, not that that's wrong, but the ones that are just about that, those are dying out. They're mainline denominations. They're dying out. And so the, where the church thrives is in being different. So as followers of Jesus, that's an eternal behavior. Thinking we can be different. We're not going to be worried if people are going to think it's strange and speak evil of us because we're not uh, running with them in the same flood of dissipation. They're doing all that. And then the last thought about our earthly behavior is kind of to summarize he's saying in verses five and six now is let's redirect our focus to eternity stop thinking just about this life and think about eternity first of all verse five is in the negative sense verse five says they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead and so peter's directing that to not that they'd be reading it necessarily but addressing 
the non-Christians, the non-Jesus followers, the ones who are living for the lusts of men, they're going to have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So even those who don't follow Jesus, maybe it's time to start thinking eternally. Because here's, here's the truth. It doesn't matter what you believe about that. Here's what's going to happen. You've got to give an account. If you're giving an account, let's say, to an earthly judge, you're on trial for murder. You don't get to say, well, you know, I've been pretty good my whole life. I just made this one mistake. I murdered someone. So, you know, I don't, I don't think I have to go to prison. No, that's not how it goes. You have to go. It doesn't matter how good you were because you broke the law. There's a penalty for that. You don't get to say, well, I got away with it for five years. I, should, I shouldn't have to go to prison now. No, you broke the law. You're going. You don't get to say, well, judge, you're not my judge. I don't believe in you. No, you're accountable to the law. You're going to prison. And eternally, when we give an account to the holy and righteous God of the universe, who is a perfect judge, we don't get those excuses. We don't get to say, I was pretty good. I just made a few mistakes. No, breaking the law is breaking the law. You broke God's holy law. You broke the law. There's a penalty. You don't get to say, well, I've been getting away with it for 80 years, so why should I go to hell now? No, it doesn't matter how long you've been getting away with it. You're giving an account. You're held accountable. You don't get to say, well, I didn't believe in you my whole life, so I don't have to go. No, it doesn't matter. You're accountable to the judge, to God. And the penalty for your sin, which is breaking God's holy law, is hell. Eternal torment in hell. See, that's where everyone is eternal. And that's where you need to start thinking eternally. Something I never did until I became a Christian. I never thought I would be accountable for what I've done. Because when you break the law, it has to be paid for. Now you can say, oh, that's not very nice of God. That's not loving. Well, if you're going to say that, Jesus offers you a way out. He said, I paid for your sin. I paid that penalty. You don't have to go. I already paid for it. You just got to follow me. And that's where the positive side of it. Look at verse 6. So now Peter encourages them to think eternally in a positive sense for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to god in the spirit he's not saying that the gospel was preached while they were dead that's a something like mormons have skewed what it what it means is that it's the gospel is preached to those who are now dead so that now they're dead, and even though they were judged according to men in the flesh, now they live according to God in the Spirit, because they heard the gospel, and now they're dead. And Peter is encouraging them that even those Christians who have suffered and died and were judged according to men, now they're living in the Spirit. Because the gospel is preached to those who now are dead, and they repented and followed Jesus. So to live with eternity in mind, we need to change our earthly behaviors. See, instead of whining and turning to sin to avoid suffering, we make a decision to suffer, to declare we're done with sin. Instead of living for the lusts of men, we live for the will of God. Instead of doing what everyone else is doing, we're pilgrims, we're different. Instead of focusing on earthly, thing, earthly things, we focus on eternity because Jesus suffered for us so we could arm ourselves with that way of thinking. Now, that's only half of it. Time-wise, it's not half. I mean, we're getting close to the end. That's, that's half of it. Now, at the end of every Kitchen Nightmares, if you haven't watched it, it's on Hulu. You can go watch it. At the end of every episode, Gordon Ramsay walks into the camera, not into it, but like he's walking, the camera's in his face, and he goes on this little monologue about 
Now, yeah, they've made some great changes. But if they don't do this, this, they're going to fall back into their own old habits. And so he, he goes on this little spiel about how he has hope for them, kind of, because they made some changes. But they might fall into old habits unless they replace those old habits with new ones. Because that's how falling into old habits works. There's a reason why we fell into bad habits in the first place. Because it's easy. It's convenient. It's what we do when things are so hard we can't change habits. We just fall back into our old patterns. And so it's, yeah, it's good to change old behaviors. But you need to replace those with new habits, new behaviors. And so now Peter is going to direct them, here's some eternal behaviors to replace them with. And this is verses 7 through 11. Let's replace our old habits with these eternal behaviors. So verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. This is the mindset we have. Why it's so important that we start to do this and make the, the little steps in this direction to change our earthly behaviors to eternal ones. The end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, and we still haven't got to the end of all things. So it doesn't mean at hand in years. What it means is God's plan of redemption. If the whole Bible, that's what it's about. And to summarize, to skip sort of to the end, all that's left to happen for God's plan of redemption to be complete is Jesus to come back. That's what Peter means. It's at hand. So that means God has already given his law. He gave that in the Old Testament. God has already come to the earth to pay for our sin. That was the New Testament with Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been given to preach the gospel unto all nations. And all that's left to happen for God's plan of redemption to complete is Jesus to come back to judge the earth. So when he says the end of all things is at hand, that can happen at any moment. There's n- yeah, there's some prophecy and some things that need to fall into place. But he's telling the people, the end of all things is at hand. And so we need to start thinking eternally. That's our mindset for this. So he says, here's the behaviors. Number one, therefore be serious. Be serious. It means exercise self-control. Be in control of yourself. I mean, that's what separates humans from the animals, is animals just do whatever they want. We're spirit-indwelt Christians. We can control ourselves. Be serious. Second behavior, and watchful in your prayers. Be watchful in prayer. That's an eternal behavior we can invest in and grow in to be praying because the end of things is at hand, to be praying for change, to be praying for God's help, right? Be watchful in prayer. It doesn't mean to be studying your end times chart and watching for all that. It just means to always be like, be in prayer. Be watching out for how God can use you and change you. Be watchful in prayer. Third behavior, verse eight, and above all things have fervent love for one another. And one another is us. Fellow Christians have fervent love for one another. And not just kind of like small talk once a week, but, you know, fervently love one another. Care for them. You see someone who's hurting, help them out. Do what you can. Someone needs some money, give them some if you have it. Right? Someone needs some food, give them some if you have it. Someone needs a friend, be their friend. Get their number, text them, you know, go out to coffee. Fervent love for one another. In very practical ways. He's saying above all, have fervent love for one another because the time is short. That's something we need to remember. That's an eternal behavior. Fervent love for one another. And he says, why? For love will cover a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean love atones for sins. It means that if you fervently love other people, you're not going to point out every speck in their eye. It doesn't mean you're going to overlook everything, but it means 
You're going to let other people, fellow Christians, make mistakes and not rage flip tables and storm out of church. You're going to say, yeah, they've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. We're going to love each other. Love covers that. If that's what that's all about. We're going to allow each other to mess up because Jesus comes for the sick. We're all sick. We all need help. We're going to let each other mess up. We're still going to love each other. Fourth behavior. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You share your house. You know, just let people in. Without grumbling. Uh, grumbling means secret displeasure. So I'm guilty of that. If someone's coming over and, and I'm complaining. Oh, I don't have time for blah, blah, blah. He says, without grumbling. So that's something I need to learn. And then the fifth behavior, this is where he spends most of the time, is using your gifts, your spiritual gifts. Verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So because time is short, we need to be thinking eternally, use your gifts to minister to one another, one another's fellow Christians. Use your spiritual gift. He's telling people, don't hoard your gift. And that's something as a church, like we always want to be working on that. You, God has given every Holy Spirit, indwelt Christian a spiritual gift for the purpose of building up the body, for the purpose of helping other people and growing other people. Sometimes we like to hoard the gifts because it's kind of uncomfortable sometimes to step out and spiritually encourage someone or pray with someone or, or teach them or exhort them or whatever. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Peter's saying we got to use those to minister to one another as good stewards. God has given us those gifts not to, there were stewards. We're not in charge of it. He's just saying you take care of it. That's what it means to be a steward. I've given you a gift. Be a good steward of it. Use it and use it to build each other up. And then he gives a little bit, I mean, there's quite a bit in these verses. You could probably do a whole sermon on it. But verse 11, he, he differentiates two basic kinds of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And he says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. So if you've got a speaking gift, don't hoard it. Use it to minister to each other. So that's preaching, teaching, exhorting, encouraging. Any type of gift that you use with your mouth, he says to speak as the oracles of God, which means like speak like you're speaking the words of God, that you are the temple of God, you are a holy priesthood, God lives inside you with the power of the Holy Spirit. So use your gift like you're speaking the words of God. Then he talks about the serving gifts, which are things like helping, administration, prayer, giving. He says, if you have serving gifts, if anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. So when you're serving, it's not from your ability, it's the ability which God supplies. And the point with both of those, whether speaking or serving, is it comes from God, not from you. Speak as the oracle of God, not speak as your opinion and your whatever, but speak as the oracles of God. Serve with the ability which God supplies, not out of your own ability or you'll get burned out. In the last part of the verse says why we use the gifts in this way, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these are the eternal behaviors. You change our mindset from these earthly ones. Replace them with eternal behaviors. And it's a lot of stuff, and it's hard, and I don't think you're not going to change your entire life in 42 minutes, I don't think. Okay, probably not. Not that it's not possible, probably not. So we've got to start somewhere, though. We have a concept in teaching called scaffolding. And it's the idea that 
Every student has the same curriculum. They have the same materials, the same assignments. But different kids need different levels of support or help. That's called scaffolding. Because like when you're building a building, you have scaffolds to support the building while it's being built. But the idea is eventually the scaffold's taken away so the kid can do it on their own. And just like on a building, it's taken away, the building can stand on its own. And I want you to know, as Christians, I think sometimes we don't have that perspective. Things like scaffolding are good things. We all need support to do any of this stuff. We're not doing any of this on our own. And sometimes we look at things like this and anything in the Bible and think, man, why am I not like that? Why can't I do that? Most of the time, this is kind of like looking at the end product. This is an example. This is where we're going. And if we're headed in that direction, that's a good thing. See, with following Jesus, we have the same mission to go make disciples. We have the same expectations. Be holy as your Father is holy. We're all works in progress. So don't be discouraged if you need a scaffold, because we all do. Don't think you should already be done. You should already be here. Or you should already be like, I've been a Christian long enough. Why am I still struggling with this stuff? The important thing is learning and growing. Because that's the process of sanctification. It's a day-by-day thing, becoming more and more like Jesus. If God wanted it done like that, he would have made it done like that. There's something about this growing process, these trials and and learning that is important for God to have, that God would have us experience that. But what's important is, walking. It's that in that going in that direction. So we need some scaffolds to take some steps. Here are some scaffolds. Number one, your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he tells us a couple times to one another, minister to one another, one another. I mean, we should be one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ. In one sense, in Romans, it talks about those who are stronger and those who are weaker. And the stronger brothers and sisters should be discipling someone. And that's just showing them how to live. And it doesn't have to be like, let's meet once a week for coffee and talk, although it could be. But discipleship, that, what Jesus did, it says, hey guys, just follow me and watch me. See what I do. Now Jesus is perfect and we're not, but those who are stronger, it says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And that's a scaffold that we should be doing and, and I want to start doing more of. And there's, there's also the, the other one that, there's someone else that we can take under our wings. And whatever we've learned, we can spread that on. And we can pass that on. And that's a scaffold because you'll never do anything. If you want to learn something, the best way to learn it is to teach it, to tell someone else how to do it and make it simple for them. So that discipleship, being the body of Christ together, that's a huge support in making these kinds of changes. We also have, secondly, the Bible, God's Word. If this is the example. This is the end point. This is the model we look at. Let's go in this direction. And then there's even examples of people we can look at, like Jesus, for example. How did Jesus demonstrate these qualities? And how can we follow him in that way to arm ourselves with that way of thinking? And then we have the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, God, the third member of the Trinity who lives inside us, who will supply us with what we need, who will change us. And we wouldn't care about these things if he weren't living within us. So I think, just for it to see how this plays out, because I was really encouraged this week, uh, 
or yeah, this week, last week, past couple of weeks with my wife, Adrian, as being an example for me of this stuff in action. Because she's been, I mean, for the past year or so, I've been having a hard time with like depression and being overwhelmed and, you know, being with kids all the time. Well, then added to that was, was another thing that could have been a burden. And I would have tended to see it that way. We've been helping a, a little girl whose family's going through a really hard time and she's been there at our house almost all day, every day, spending the night sometimes. And, and I watch Adrian with that. And I don't even know if I can explain it, so it's probably not a good example, but maybe it's encouraging to her, of seeing how someone, how she just puts herself last, all those things, those problems she was struggling with. And I can see her thinking eternally. Like she's not so worried about running out of time and getting... The, the time for herself or the calmness, although like I try to help her with that and stuff, but I see her just completely like, yeah, I know it's, it's hard now, but eternally, what's Jesus going to say when, when she helps someone who is in such a need? And I can just see her working that out, and that encourages me. And so that's it. When you see other people doing it, man, that's, that's very powerful. And I don't know, it's kind of vague, but I'm saying it just because I wanted to. And you can probably think of that in yourselves. What are you saying? Again, changing our thinking. Arm yourself with the way of thinking that Jesus, because he suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself that way. Change your earthly habits. Make a decision to suffer rather than taking the easy way out. Whether it's sin, falling into old habits, complaining, whining, numbing yourself. Live for the will of God, not for the lusts of men. Be different. And not just doing what everyone else is doing, but be different. And redirect your thinking to eternity instead of thinking just right here, right now. And replace those earthly habits with eternal habits. Be serious. Be watchful in prayer. Love one another fervently. Be hospitable. Use your gifts. If you're not a Christian, and I think we've kind of addressed this already, like, you're eternal, whether you believe it or not. And non-Christian includes people who call themselves Christians, but they're not following Jesus anywhere. They let alone suffering. They're just not following Jesus anywhere. That's not a Christian. It says it, what I said in verse 5, what the Bible says, you will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. You're going to be accountable for all that you've done. It doesn't matter how much good. And this is for everyone. Like, I would be a part of this too if not for Jesus. There's a penalty you're going to pay, and it's living eternally in hell. If you don't want to go there, you repent. You turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus, and you follow him. And you don't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. That's not repentance. Repentance is, I'm sorry it was wrong. There's nothing I can do. So I'm going to follow you because I see the love that you had for me and whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it because I'm thankful. That's repentance. If you're a Christian, think about some steps you can take. Where are you too wrapped up in this world that you're forgetting eternity, all of eternity? Where you're too consumed with what's going on day to day and not thinking about eternity. Change those earthly habits, turn them to eternal ones, and replace them 
with eternal habits so that we have the freedom to pursue the will of God. So let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much that we can, uh, we can live eternally, not suffering but in joy because we do not deserve that. I have sinned and I deserve to pay for it. But Father, because you're a loving God and you're kind and long-suffering and generous, you sent your Son to pay for that so that I wouldn't have to, so I can pursue your will. So I don't have to just pursue the lusts of the flesh. And I can live for you, God. So please, I ask you for help for me and all my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would start making some changes to think more eternally, to put it in that perspective, to to stop seeing our lives as just 70, 80 years, whatever you give us, but instead to rethink it as eternal. God, I pray if there's anyone who's listening who's not a Christian, that you would convict them of their sin. Show them that there's a price to pay for breaking the law, for breaking your law, but that that payment's already been paid if they would follow Jesus. God, help us to love one another, to encourage one another, to use our gifts for one another so that we can do these things with joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.